0: Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yañez, and this is the Wine and Cheese Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Cheese Chisme Wednesday. So, welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. I am here with Rosalinda Mendoza, CEO and co founder of Mosel Mezcal. Hola, Rosalinda. How are you? Hola. So, let me read Rosalinda's bio and then I'm going to tell you guys we have a wine and chisme first. So, Rosalinda Mendoza is CEO and co founder of Mosel Mezcal, an e commerce company that delivers ultra premium. Altisno Mezcales to your home to create a shared tasting experience. Rosalinda was born and raised in rural Washington to farmworker immigrants from Michoacán, Mexico. Between growing up in the farmlands of Washington State and visiting her grandparents in rural Michoacán, she understood and appreciated the hard work of cultivating and making real food and beverages. Rosalinda and her sister co-founded Mosel Mezcal which crafts mezcales from Michoacan using 400-year-old artisanal methods with two ingredients, agave y agua. So I'm just getting into mezcal. Like I'm just learning Mm -hmm. about it, but I love the way that you're really talking about it. You can hear like the love in your bio, right? Like (laughs) this is like even just through your bio, you can hear the love. This is the very first episode. I am not drinking wine. I'm drinking (laughs) this. I'm drinking it So Rosalinda, I know we talked right before I hit record, but I wasn't unable to get my hands on some Mosel Mezcal beforehand, which I'm so sad because I really wanted to get some. And I know, you know, just timing wise and everything, but I do have two Mezcals in front of me. In January, I went to Oaxaca. I went to a trip from Oaxaca mm-hmm. and we got these mezcals from just this little mezcalir, you know, like this little mezcalera lady. And literally it was just one of those where the sign is like mezcal. <laughs> <That was it. laughs> and she poured like to bring them over, she pours them and seals them. And, and it's not even labeled. These mezcals are not even labeled. They're like, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. So I have a strawberry mezcal and I have a Jamaica mezcal.
1: Oh my goodness. I don't think I've had those flavors. So you'll have to tell me how they taste, but we'll walk. I have some Um, It's a cupriata, which is an agave that's uh, specific to the region of Michoacán. So we'll, we'll taste it together.
0: Yeah. So tell me, walk me through the process of when you're tasting a mezcal, like, or when somebody's tasting mezcal, how should they approach it? How should they walk through it? Because I don't really know that. My partner tells me, like, oh yeah, this and that. but. He's also very familiar with whiskeys and tequilas and everything. So I feel like Mm -hmm. he picks up on things that I don't. So can you please walk me through like how we can properly taste a mezcal?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So the first thing you want to do is when you pour your mezcal I like to let it rest, let it breathe. And then afterwards, I like to sniff it. Now, the interesting thing is that a lot of people try to stick their nose in there. But usually with mezcal, because it's, you know, with the mezcales that that we produce in Michoacán and also in Oaxaca, they tend to be like very artesanales higher in alcohol content, like you'll have people that say like, oh, if it's below 45%, it's not mezcal. Like you have people who will say like, eso es agua, no es mezcal. (laughs) So it it tends to be higher in alcohol content. So instead of like putting your nose, you usually smell it from up here. Um, Like you put it by your chin. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of let, and you'll eat. And the thing with the, with mezcales, specifically mezcales artesanales, and I'll get into it later about like sort of the differences, is that you just like Smell the aromas of the agave, right? So for me, I'm drinking Musel's Cupriata, our 2020 expression. So it's very like herbaceous profile.
0: Like I can definitely smell the agave. So for you, what are you smelling? I have the, the strawberry one first. And for the first time, I'm smelling the strawberries. Like I had it before, but like you said, when I was smelling it, I had it right up under my nose and I could smell the strawberries, but I was smelling a lot of the alcohol. Yeah, yeah. But when I put it to my chin, like you said, I'm really smelling like the fruitiness. I'm really smelling the strawberry. I'm really smelling, I'm trying to think of what else I'm selling. And I have this in a shot glass, not in a big glass. So maybe I should have put it in a bigger glass to kind of let it have some more air. Yeah. But it does smell a little green too.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So after you, you know, you, you taken in the aromas, I always like to take like a little sip, and that first sip is really to awaken the tasting buds. Again, because the mezcales artesanales that we work with like tend to be in again in higher alcohol content, right, forty five or above. So it can be a little like oh, wakes up your hey, (laughs) hey, I'm here, yeah. And then also to um, just take a little sip and just kind of let it like cover your mouth and you to wake up everything.
0: This tastes kind of peppery too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. So the one that you got from Oaxaca, do you know what agave, what type of agave?
0: Oh my gosh. My boyfriend would know. I'm so terrible.
1: No, probably it's an espadín. So an espadín is like pretty um, common
0: in in Oaxaca. So it's probably an espadín. So, okay. Yeah. We were trying so many different ones and I literally was just I'm not going to lie. I was just kind of along for the ride, right? He was the (laughs) one who was like, oh yes, this, this, this. And he even got a tattoo while we were down there. Oh wow. So it was a great trip then. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was an awesome trip. But me, I'm just like, he literally was, he was going through all of these and he'd just be like, here, taste this, here, taste this, here, taste this. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, and some, I was like, oh yeah, I like it. And some I'm like, oh my gosh. Water, give me water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then after you do the
1: first sip, right? Then after that, you just you just sip it. So there, there's a saying in Michoacán about like how you drink mezcal. And I'll say it in Spanish and then I'll translate it, but basically like, Ooh, like la manera que te tomas mezcal es la manera como tratas a las mujeres con mucho respeto y So like you drink that. mezcal with a lot of respect and little kisses. So you just like sip it and yeah, do little kisses to your mezcal and that's how you drink.
0: I a good like mezcal. that. Oh yeah. So I'm going to have another sip. Yeah. I feel like I'm appreciating it more now. Like I said, when you're with somebody who already kind of knows, I feel like he's like, don't you, didn't you taste this? I'm like, I don't know, but I guess maybe that's how people feel when I'm talking about wine, but I try and like Like you said, you let it air out just like you would do with some red, good red wine. You want to let the Mm -hmm. oxygen in and you want to let those, those tannins kind of set, you know, settle and and soften and everything. So I love that. Let's kind of get into it. And I'll ask you questions as I end up, once I finish this and go into the other one and stuff, you grew up in Washington Mm -hmm. because your family are immigrants from Michoacan, Mexico. Your parents are, are immigrants. Yep why Washington of all places? <laughs> like how did they end up in Washington? It's really
1: interesting. So one of the things I'm really, really proud of, and I feel really grateful is I grew up in a family with like really strong women. Like I, um, all my tias, like, and my mom, like, that's one of the things that I really, really, as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, wow. Like I've got very lucky, you know, in, in that regard. And so the way that our family and actually many. In Washington state, especially in central Washington, there's a lot of agriculture. So apples, cherries, hops, like the majority of the hops in North America come from the Yakima Valley. So next time you drink a beer, like you can think Yakima, (laughs) that's (laughs) where I'm from. And the way that a lot of Mexican ended up in Washington was actually through the Bracero program in the 40s, right? Mm -hmm. So if you recall during that time, Right. World War II was happening, men went off to war, a lot of the farms in the, and again, I'm just speaking for the Yakima Valley, I can't speak for other, but, in, but in a lot of the farms here in Yakima Valley and in Washington state, were also owned and managed by Japanese Americans. And so we know what happened to them, right? They got interned, right? And so all of a sudden you had all the men that went off to war. You had the Japanese, uh, you know, Japanese Americans that were placed in internment camps and people needed to work the land. So at that time, That's how the U.S. did this guest worker program, this Bracero program, this agreement. And I think what's so fascinating, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but when I mean, at that time, like the Mexico had the upper hand in negotiations because people weren't coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that um, the Mexican government asked the U.S. was like, okay. Yes, we will allow, you know, our Mexican citizens to come and help you work in the U.S., but they specifically said they cannot go to Texas because, as you know, there were a lot of lynchings of Mexican-Americans. And so Washington, Oregon, California were the states that the Bracero program was allowed to go to. So that's how our family ended up in Washington state. And the reason I I started by saying, like, I come from a family, I'm like, I'm so grateful, coming from a family of a strong woman is that my mom's oldest sister, my tia, she at the time was like, you know, 16, right. Had just gotten married. She's from the rancho in Michoacan and her husband is going to go off, you know, and this is in the like late 50s, 60s, right. The program was still going, was going to go off to be a bracero. And at that time it was mainly men that would come. And my tia was like, no, I'm going with you. So because of my tia, she like came with her husband. and was like, you're not going to leave me behind. I'm going with you. And was one of the few women, right. That was like working in the field. And then eventually that's how my mom and our rest of our family ended up in, in Washington state. And so that's really how a lot of families from Michoacan and Jalisco and Colima and Zacatecas kind of ended up in Oregon and in Washington.
0: Oh, wow. You know what? I need to ask when I don't know what year my, my grandpa moved. He's from Jalisco. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what year he moved here, but you're just making me, what every time I talk to people and I and I learn, like I ask pe- people in my family a little bit more, a little bit more, because some things I know a lot of and some things I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And it just makes me like, every time I talk to somebody and like right now from you, I'm like, oh, you know what? I never knew what year my grandpa came here. And he did used to work, the, the citrus and avocado fields here in San Diego, in, in North County, San Diego. And then my grandma used to be one of the packers. So in Orange County, you know how they have like those big packing plants. That's when my, and my grandma used to work in, in those and stuff. So it just makes me wonder, like now you're making me wonder, I'm going need to find this out. Yeah. yeah. year? Because I know my grandma didn't use the Bracero program, but I wonder if my grandpa did. That just makes me.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and you know what's so fascinating about the Bracero program to me is that even like this concept of like what it means to be a U.S. citizen, right? So for example, I have a cousin who, from the Yakima Valley, who married someone whose family is from Zacatecas. And what I think was so interesting is that, you know, her husband immigrated from Zacatecas when he was like 14. So recently, like in the 90s, right? But the way he was able to come to the U.S. was because his grandma, was born in California. They had worked in the field in California, right? So like they had worked, they went back. The you know, the, the grandchild comes to the U.S. And so it's so interesting, these like yeah. connections. I, I think one of the things that Mexico and U.S., like we're so interconnected. One of the things that um, Mexico and the U.S. and like, in, you know, California, we're going to watch like we share his most precious resource, which is its
0: people, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And we understand that. And I know a lot of people understand that, but there's so many, so many people who don't understand that. Yeah. There's so many people who don't understand like everything that happened during the pandemic, you know, who was out there making sure that the food was picked and making sure that food got on people's tables instead of looking at it with such a, with a wide eye of what's happening is really what should have happened, right? If people like seeing it, but they see it with such a, telescope of what's going on and not paying attention to everything else. They just see one very one thing and Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, it's crazy. When did you start hearing about these stories growing up? Were these things that you were hearing about growing up? Did you hear about your parents or did you witness your parents going out and, and working agriculture and everything?
1: Yeah, it was a combination of everything, right? So um, I'm the oldest of of five. And I would say the three of us, we all worked in the fields with our parents as kids. Back then you could take kids. (laughs) So we worked like the apples and cherries. So we grew up, you know, in the 90s. And then as far as like the stories, I'm very preguntona. I just, I'm always curious. <laughs> yes, like I, I like that. to ask questions. To... <laughs> Obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. So I would just ask my grandparents, uh, my tia, I would just ask them questions. And also to my sister, she wanted a really cool project that she did when she was an undergrad, she was a history major and she did her thesis on the Mexican families in the Yakima Valley, and so she, what was so awesome about the, the you know her her research thesis that she did was that she interviewed families that had immigrated to the Yakima Valley in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And by the time she had published her thesis, some of those folks had passed away, but she had recorded these incredible interviews with them. And I got to help her transcribe some of the interviews. That's also a lot how we we got to learn. Um, it was through her, the research that
0: she was doing. Um, is when she, she publishing was a, a book? Co- has she published a book? Has she uh, turned that she, into a you book? You know, I've told her, but she has not. I was like, you need to um, make this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Her, now she needs to come on and I we need to hear these stories. Yeah.
1: <laughs> One of the things that I remember from her research was, so the Yakima Valley, it's a, a combination of like my family, right? That came directly from Mexico and also a combination of Tejanos, right? That followed the, basically the crops, right? So you have families that were from Texas and then they just followed the, okay, you know, we're going to go to Wyoming. And, you know, I think Wyoming and Montana were like the beets or something, the sugar beets. And then they would end up in Yakima for the apple and cherry harvest and things like that. So, What I found so fascinating is how every earlier generation, you always had these two perspectives. You had one where you had people who um, moved to the Yakima Valley in the 70s and they talk about how hard it was. I mean, my mom, I mean, she shares stories about how like they had to sleep out in the fields, right? Because like INS was like on the drive there. And so they couldn't go back to their house where they were sleeping. So they would sleep out in the fields, Overnight until they left, or like one time, like my Tia was like, gonna baptize her daughter, and the police and the INS would like be right in front of the Catholic church, right? So the priest came to that my aunt's house and baptized my cousin because they couldn't go. You know, we grew up hearing these stories, but what's interesting is like for example, people that came in the seventies, right? They talk about how hard it was. And then they're like, oh, but people who got here in the 90s, they, they don't they have it so much easier. Right. And then you would interview people from the 90s and they talk about how hard it was. And they're like, oh, people who got here in the 2000s, they don't know how hard it is. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that it's always hard. Right. Like leaving no matter what, you know, obviously there's different obstacles and, and challenges that each generation faces. Mm-hmm. But just leaving your home, your family and what, you know, like that's hard period i don't care what and and that was something that was really beautiful to see that for those families that we inter- you know that my sister interviewed to be able to make those connections that no matter what whenever you're leaving your home it's yeah. really hard
0: i mean i've interviewed a lot of people who've left Mexico or left other places and come here and in fact there's uh, the owners of Athena collective they're two Mexicanas that were you know 6 and 8 when they moved here and they moved to Texas. They moved to the, you know, to a, a suburb of Dallas and they were talking about how difficult it was. So I agree with you, no matter where, no matter what time when you're leaving your home, it's hard mm-hmm. because you're leaving a place where your heart is. Yeah. So I, I totally get that. And I just, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Yeah. When you were growing up and you were working these fields with your parents and you were hearing these stories, what kind of dreams did you have for yourself? Did you imagine, oh, I want to be this, or I want to be that. Or, I mean, obviously you're where you're at is very far, you know, like you've come, you've done a lot, but what were those dreams when you were a kid and when you were in, when you were in the fields working? Oh my gosh. Well, at the time,
1: I was really into Gloria Trevi, so we would like <laughs> turn over the apple bins and make it into a stage. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that my mom and my tia, one of the things that they like really instilled in us is they were never ashamed of like the, the hard work and the work that they did. They had this really deep sense of pride of like where they came from and like what they were doing but they also knew that education was really important. And so for me, it was always like, you're going to go to college. You know, my grandparents, like didn't know how to read or write. My mom only went to eighth grade, right? So like this concept of getting a college degree, only the people that I knew were like my teachers that had like nobody in our circle. So I was like, that's what we're going to do. So my sister was always like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And she did become a lawyer. She's a very successful attorney. For me, I knew that I just wanted to, go to college to get a good job to help my family. That was like my main motivator because of how we had grown up. And the way that I saw farm work was that it was, it was very honorable and hard work, but it was a stepping stone to something much bigger. That's how we saw it as
0: kids. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese minutes. Now that spring is well underway, let's swap out the winter look with a spring refresh. Our friends at Ulta Beauty recommended a few of the following must-haves. Starting with the eyes, NYX Epic Smoke Vegan Eyeliner brings out your sultry eyes to the next level. This epic eyeliner goes on like eyeliner and blends out like smoke and it comes in 12 daring shades. So you can play it safe with a neutral look or go hot with their adventurous shades. Next, check out Hourglass's Vanish Airbrush Primer. This is a translucent skin-perfecting primer that smooths skin, controls shine, and provides a blurred airbrush finish while extending makeup wear. Complete this spring refresh with Tresluce Beauty Bold Yatrevida Liquid Lip Tint. Tresluce's Lip Tint Hyaluronic Acid plumps lips up with immediate, long-lasting hydration. They also come in eight bold colors, which allow you to take on the day with a burst of color. But remember, This is only the beginning of your spring refresh. So head over to Ulta Beauty and shop now in-store or online for all your essential spring refresh looks. Did you have to manage working like farm work and school? Like how did you manage that? And how did you perceive that? I mean, I know you said as a stepping stone, but once you get older, I feel like once you get into like pre-teens, teens, there's something in our head, we freaking all freak out in our own minds, right? I think there's so many wonderful teenagers out there who have pride, but then I think there's a lot of teenagers out there who get embarrassed and ashamed of where they've come from or what their parents are doing. So what was your journey in those times? So, you know, by the time in high school, I had gotten a job at
1: a bank. So it wasn't working in firm work, but my family, I mean, still involved, like either working at the warehouses, right? Packing apples and cherries and things like that. The thing with where I grew up was that because there was a significant like Mexican population, and the economy is strongly tied to agriculture, that everybody worked, you know, on that. So also too, my mom and like my grandparents and my tias were always really proud. I don't think they as realized they that. But, yeah, but they were always really proud of where they came from and like proud of their work. So because we saw them be proud of what they were, you know, they were doing, then you know, as is the same as like vergüenza robar, you know, like <laughs> that's vergüenza. So we also
0: felt really proud of the work that they did. As they should be, right? As they because it's not anything to be ashamed of. But I know that there's I've heard stories where you get to a point, but I think also it depends on what area you live in and all of that. So let me ask, when did you first become aware of mezcal? Because I don't think I really became aware of mezcal until I was an adult. It was really more tequila. And And can you share the difference between mezcal and tequila? Because I think a lot of people aren't aware of what those differences are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the differences is, I think about it in three ways. So one is the differences is in the plant, right? The agave that is used. And the second thing is the process that is used to make it. And then the third is the region, like where it comes from. So tequila only is made from blue agave or tequila, no Weber, whereas with mezcal, it can be produced from many other types of agaves. So technically speaking, a tequila is a mezcal. So probably 100 years ago, people called tequila mezcal, like, oh, the mezcal from tequila, right? It was a distilled agave, just blue agave, but it was from the region of tequila. So that's on the agave side. So tequila is just blue agave with mezcal. There's different varieties of agave. Second thing is a process. I would say that most tequilas, not all of them, but most tequilas use a modern distillation process. Autoclaves, like when you go in, you'll see a lot of stainless steel and it's really meant to, you know, the production is meant more for efficiency, right? To produce a lot of barrels of tequila. With mezcal, the process is very artisanal in the sense that the way that you cook the agave Is in this earthen oven, right? The way that you distill it, distill the agave, is in these copper stills. So, for example, in Oaxaca, when you went, you probably saw like the copper, and it was a lot of like brick, right? A lot. And we saw the the mule going around. Oh, the taona, the way they crush it. Yep, yep. Yeah. In Michoacan the way we distill is using a wooden still, which is very unique to the region of Michoacan. And then also to the fermentation, right? So when you went to Oaxaca, you probably saw like these big kind of wooden vats, like these barrels almost, yeah. where they like the agave mash and they let it ferment. In Michoacan, you do see a little bit of that, but typically it's, they are these underground pilas. They're like these pilas and they're covered in wood. And that's where the fermentation happens. So... The process, again, is using these really ancient distillation methods to make the mezcal. So the production tends to be smaller batch. I mean, I can't speak for Oaxaca, but like in Michoacan, just to give you an idea of like what we're talking about, usually like a tequila or whiskey distillery, right? They're like distilling over 10,000 liters a month, Right. In Michoacán, the vinatas, and we call them vinatas in Oaxaca, they're called palenques. So the vinatas in Michoacán, like most are distilling, you know, in one vinatiada, in one distillation, we're talking about like 300 to 600 liters. So oh, they're yeah. a very small batch. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about the plan, we talked about the process, and then the third is the region, where they come from. So for tequila, there's a couple of regions. Jalisco is the, the one that's known the most. Actually, Michoacán also has denomination of origin for tequila. So you probably have had Michoacán tequila, but they probably just call it like Jalisco <laughs> for like marketing purposes. But the majority comes from Jalisco with tequila with mezcal. There's also a region. So Oaxaca is one that has denomination of origin for mezcal, guerrero. Zacatecas, obviously Michoacan and so there's a couple others like El Estado de Mexico, Durango so there's a couple regions and what's so fascinating about those regions is like the agaves that they use are different, right? Because it's whatever specific to the region mm. and then also the distillation process right, are also very different because again, they're specific to what the environment and you know what was there at the time so
0: those are the differences any questions on that before I dive in? No, no. <laughs> I think it's really fascinating listening to the different regions that have it, the different distillation processes. I think that's really cool to hear about. Now we're just going to have to make a trip to Michoacan and and figure out yes, lens. go let see those know. ones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Let me know. Yeah. And so Amosel you know, we're a mezcal from Michoacan. We use a wooden still again, which is very unique to the region of Michoacan. And then the agaves that we use are, you know, we use a cupriata, the Iñequidens, again, because there are these agaves that are specific to, to Michoacan. Whereas like, for example, Oaxaca, you have like espadín, tepestate, all these other agaves, again, that are specific to the region. And they're also really incredible. But for us, It was important to, obviously, I'm biased because my family's from Michoacan. So I was like, why isn't there more mezcal for Michoacan? And so I guess to answer your question about like how we got introduced into the mezcal. So mezcal was always there, like growing up. So we grew up between, you know, going from Washington State to Michoacan as kids, we would go back and forth. And so mezcal was always there. And that was something that like older people drink, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically older men. And then also, too, my grandma would use it for medicinal purposes. When you had resfriado, like they
0: would put it on you. The lady, the mezcalera lady that we went to, she had a whole thing for different medicinal purposes. Oh, this is for your digestion. Oh, this is for this. Oh, this is for this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was my introduction to it, just being around it. It was, I would say, it was until we were much older, that, and, you know, we could drink, that when we would go back and forth between Mexico and the U.S., that we would bring bottles of mezcal. And as I shared earlier, I, you know, was frustrated that there wasn't mezcal for Michoacan in the States. At the time, I didn't realize that that was like a super loaded question, but also too, you know, my sister and I, we became so passionate, you know, when you're passionate about something, and for us, we were passionate about making sure how do we Ensure that the mezcal culture in the U.S. considers the history, the culture, the land, and the way it connects people. And so, for us, it was really important that if we don't tell our story, like someone else is going to tell it. So that's when we decided to make the jump.
0: Okay, so going back to that, because obviously there's all this celebrity tequila, right? There's all yeah. the celebrity tequila, and there's a lot of push for, especially within our community, to drink tequila from Latino-owned Brands, right? I'm very Mm -hmm. much about supporting Latine owned wine brands. Are there any celebrity owned mezcal? I don't know if there are or not. And how do you feel about that? Because I know how I feel about it, right? I (laughs) I, I mean, I think that there's a way to show respect, but then you look at something like, let's just take a very big example, right? You have somebody like Kendall Jenner with her 818 tequila. And who couldn't even say like she was, not they weren't even saying like tequila blanco before. It was like blanco tequila. And we're like, okay, first of all, you can't even do that correctly. And then the whole commercial truly just not, that's not appreciating the culture. But you're talking about the connection of, of all of these things to the land, to the culture. Have you seen that in the mezcal world? And do you think that will happen? We have seen a little bit
1: of that. Um, there are, there's a Mexican actor who is like Ojo de Tigre, I think it's called. So there's a couple, there are a couple of celebrity Mezcal brands out there. I would say that one of the things about Mezcal and the people in the community in Mezcal in Mexico, like in Oaxaca, has done really great work around activism and Michoacán too, is they have taken lessons, you know, they've learned a couple of lessons from what happened with Tequila, right? And so they're trying to make sure that how do we, because what happens is when you start mass producing, there are pressures to try to industrialize the process. And mm. when you try to industrialize the process, you start to lose that knowledge that has been passed from generation to generation on how to make this mezcal with your hands, right? And, and use these ancient distillation methods. And there was, so this is where it gets a little interesting. So with denomination of origin, like you have to go through a certification process so that you can use the word mezcal, basically, to be able to sell it. And before 2017, it was just mezcal. And what was happening was when people were buying mezcal, they thought they were buying like small produce, artisanal mezcal. But a lot of bigger companies were doing super industrialized mezcal. But they were promoting it or, or making it seem like a artisanal mezcal. And so at that time, the, the regulatory agency in Mexico, Consejo Regulador de Mezcal, updated the norma, the rules basically on like, OK, in my opinion, I think they shouldn't have included industrialized mezcal because I think that defeats the whole purpose of having a denomination of origin. The whole purpose of denomination of origin is that you are protecting the culture, the ways that these families and communities have been producing this special thing, right? Anyways, I think they tried to meet halfway. So what they did was they divided the definition for mezcal. So there's three types of mezcales. There's mezcal. So when you go out and shop, make sure that you look at the bottle. And if it just says mezcal, it's industrialized mezcal. If it says mezcal artesanal, it basically means that it was cooked with volcanic rock, that it was mashed, you know, with the tauna, or it was in that it was distilled in either a copper still or an ar- in our case, right, a wooden still. So Moselle is mezcal artesanal. And then the third category that they created is called mezcal ancestral. And basically is the same thing as mezcal artesanal, except that it uses clay pots. So basically, so I always tell people like buy mezcal artesanal or mezcal ancestral and you should be good with that. But Ooh, um, thank yeah. you for
0: sharing that. So yeah. I'm going to try I'm, I've already tried this one. This is my, the Jamaica mezcal. Uh-huh. And just did not taste like mezcal. I like, this is one of the dangerous ones. Oh yeah. It is like, it doesn't taste like any, it tastes like you go to the, you know, the taqueria and you get some Jamaica. Uh, well, the Jamaica oh no, that's dangerous. And I can smell the. I'm like, oh, it smells so
1: good. Like, you definitely smell it. Now I'm interesting. I'm interested in to see how they made that one. So one of the things with mezcales is that you have. um, I don't know if you heard of the pechuga. So essentially, when they're doing the distillation in Oaxaca, they typically it's like a turkey breast that they kind of put in the distillation, and like it gives it like a special flavor. In Michoacán, I mean, in different regions, is different. Like, there's some regions where they use iguanas, like, to, for, wow. yeah, yeah. Others where they use berries and nuts,
0: normally around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So, I'd be curious to see how they made the jameca. That sounds, sounds amazing. I know. I, You know what I should have asked? Well, when he went back, I was, I, I wasn't with him when he went to go get it. But, so let me ask you, because you went, and I'm going to ask you how you came up with the name and everything, but before... Like you actually held, before you started in Moselle, you actually held traditional corporate roles. <laughs> mm-hmm. You actually, let me kind of go back into, in, into what your your thing said, because you worked for for IBM, Starbucks, the Washington State Farmworker Housing Trust, very different places. And then you started in Moselle during the pandemic. Yeah, the time was a little off. <laughs> So first of all, what made you and your sister decide, this is what we're going to do. What made you say, you know what, I'm done with corporate, I'm done. And this is where you went and did your focus.
1: Yeah. So I should know. So after undergrad, I worked for a nonprofit, which is the Washington State Farm Worker Housing Trust. So right after undergrad, it was interesting how I was like, oh, I want to do something like you have, you're you full of energy. You want to change the world. Yeah. Right. So I worked for a nonprofit and it was an incredible experience because I got to basically go to all these rural communities across Washington state and work with farmworker families and work to improve housing conditions for them. And that was an incredible experience. And so I did that for several years. Then I made the switch over to corporate You know, what's so interesting is that a lot of people are like, oh, how was the transition from like nonprofit to corporate? And I'm like, oh my gosh, in corporate, like I would want to hire people who have done nonprofit because in nonprofit world, you're trying to
0: tackle this huge mission, but you have like no resources, right? You find I've worked in nonprofit, a lot of nonprofit too. And you figure, you You have to figure out out how to do it. You're
1: scrappy right? And then you go to the corporate side and it's like, you have resources. I'm like, uh, yeah, I would always take anybody with nonprofit experience. I know that they're going to make the best out of it. Like, yes, why wouldn't you? <laughs> when I made the transition over, I think at that point it was just more because I wanted to see if I could do it. And so I, and it was in marketing and sales roles. When I was at the time I was at IBM, that's when and my sister, you know, she's an attorney and works for a large law firm. We were obviously, again, going great, continue to go back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. to visit family. And, and at that time, we were just so, I know it's a word that gets overused, but we were just absolutely passionate about we need to be able to tell our story about Michoacan mezcal. If we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And why not us? And that was in asking yourself, like, why not us? is a really scary not? question. <laughs> yeah, it's a really scary question because in my mind, I never thought that, I, I, you know, you're always like, you have these ideas, you know, you have really strong opinions about how things should be done. And you're like, oh, they should do this. But you never think like, well, why don't you do it? Right. <laughs> and at the time I was like, What? And like, well, why don't we just do it? And so we started the actual, the process, like back in 2017, 2018, when we said, okay, we're going to do it. So we formed the company and we were working on it. Like I was working on it on the side. And then at the end of 2019, you know, it got to the point where I was using all my vacation to like go to Michoacan and stuff. And so I was like, okay, we're going to ramp this up. So at the end of 2019, I quit my cushy tech job and then 2020 happened. Okay. So the timing, yeah, it was a little off. <laughs> but one of the things that I do want to say about like making the jump into entrepreneurship, especially like growing up here in Washington State, like here in Seattle, right? You hear these stories and I'm preaching like in California, right? With like, with like Amazon, like Jeff Biz it was like, oh, he just started selling books out of his living room or like, oh, they started Google out of a garage or whatever. But the one thing that people never talk about is that to make the jump is really hard. And for example, like Jeff Bezos, like, his dad gave him 300K like to start it. So like, and I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong. Like there's nothing wrong with your parents giving you 300K. Like I hope to give my kids 300K so they can start their startup. But that part never gets told. They just yeah. talk about like, oh, they start out of their garage and like, mm. and making the jump I finally made the jump in at the end of 2019. Like that was like a long process, right? It wasn't something that was like overnight. Like I, you know, it was like year and a half in in, in the making of just like thinking it through because, you know, we talked earlier, right? Being like first generation college student, like me jumping into entrepreneurship, I didn't have a safety net. I was a safety net for my family. And so it was... I had to do a lot of self-reflection and the interesting thing is that like my mom and my family was super supportive. They were never like, "Oh no, you can't quit your good job." And like, it's okay. Like, you know, but for me it was really hard because I felt this like sense of obligation because my family had sacrificed so much and then here I was like, "Oh, you know what? I'm just going to like jump into this and I'm probably not gonna make money for a couple of years, but you know we're gonna make it work. Like that was really hard, and I always like to share that because I think there's always like this mystery, this narrative that gets told that it's like, oh yeah, like you know you should do it, da da da. But it's like yeah, but like some people have it harder. There's all these layers and things that you have to consider when making the yeah, jump.
0: Absolutely, and I'm so glad you shared that because you're right. There's so many times where. It's like, oh, yes, this. And you're like, no, but how many people from our community, they don't have those types of resources to get that type of, oh, it was a small million dollar loan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a small 300,000. Like, what? yeah, that's not small. That is not a small loan in my head. That is not a small loan. I'm sorry. That is like, OK, we're doing this. And then just start right before COVID that, and of course, at the end of 2019, we don't know. Yeah. What's happening. So tell me how you were like, I'm. you quit. You're like, look, holy crap, this is happening. But then you still obviously persevere and you still obviously decide to continue. Were, were you just like, I have no choice at this point. We got to keep going. I think for me, I was just
1: so committed. I was like, this is going to work like one way or another. And, uh, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, your earlier question about like, oh, what were your dreams? You know, as when you were younger and seeing your family work out in the field, like I didn't know how to get a college. Like I didn't know anybody, but I knew I was going to make it work one way or another. It was going to happen. And that's, I had that same feeling with Mosella. I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this is happening, but we're going to make it work. Like <laughs> I feel really blessed that I had a really great support system. Like you know I'm married my husband he has been absolutely incredible and then to be able to do this with my sister also too, what keep me really motivated was the trips to Michoacan you know when i would go and visit with families there and it was just really beautiful because you for me when you drink mezcal it this is not something you drink alone in a leather couch this is something that is meant to be shared mm-hmm. and all those beautiful conversations and stories that I would have with people in Michoacan, with our family, like it just made me feel so rooted and just like have this incredible sense of pride of what our people have been through and like what we're able to accomplish. And the fact that we're still, the way that Mezcal is made today is the same way it was made like 400 years ago. That to me is like, wow, that has survived and that that has that continues to get passed on. So that also kept me motivated. Yeah.
0: I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, because you were talking about having these traditions and everything and, and bringing them to the U.S. So how do you source your mezcal? What's that process in regards to how it's sourced how it's actually fermented? Is it bottled and everything? Like, how does that get to where you guys are so then it can be distributed? How does that work? So, the
1: thing with Michoacan is that the infrastructure, and when I say infrastructure, I'm not talking like roads and things like that, but Michoacan doesn't have the, the infrastructure or the systems in place are not as to be able to export are not as developed as like, let's say, Jalisco to be able to export tequila or Oaxaca to do so that they could do their mezcal. So we had to start from scratch. So we're part of a co-op distillery in Michoacan that's made up of agave farmers and mezcal producers. And many of these families have been producing mezcal for, for generations. And so we worked with them alongside together to get certified because in order to be able, like, to like say to be able to bring it into the U.S. and to use the word mezcal, we had to get the certification. And so in Michoacán, not a lot of producers are certified. I mean, it's still mezcal, but when you're trying to like export it, you need to use the word mezcal, right? Mm-hmm. So we went through the certification process together and got certified together to be able to use the word To certified as mezcal the bottles everything we it was me and my sister who we just like would meet with different vendors and and it just becomes like this little cadenita this little chain where like you know someone like oh i know somebody and then it's like okay and again i'm preguntona so like it works (laughs) (laughs) so that's how we the mezcal is produced in michoacan it's bottled in michoacan and then we worked with actually a great customs broker out of um, the San Diego, Tijuana area who then crossed it over, you know, he was our custom broker and crossed it over to San Diego. And then we had it shipped over to Seattle, but that took, we're talking about two years to like wow. make that happen. Yeah. Those
0: bottles are beautiful. I'm so sad that I was not able to get one, but like I, when I looked on the website, And even when my partner looked on the website, he was, oh my gosh, those are some cool looking bottles. They're beautiful. Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah. We wanted for the bottles, we wanted to make sure that the bottle reflected the beauty and the hard work of the mezcal, of the liquid, right? And and we wanted to do it in a way to show a different perspective of mexico i think a lot of the times when people think of mexico they have like their preconceived notions of like either like mexican revolution or day of the dead which by the way those are beautiful beautiful parts of mexico My but day is dia de
0: los muertos so.
1: oh nice yeah they're beautiful beautiful parts of of mexican culture but they're not the only ones right there's right. like this whole array of like just different things that we can showcase in Mexico. So for us, it was from the very beginning, like we're going to introduce this Michoacan mezcal that's already like not as accessible in the U.S. to begin with. And then we want to make sure that the bottle reflects the beauty and the hard work. And so the the bottles are pretty much handmade. And then the other thing too, we wanted to make sure that the design and everything was very specific to the region of, of Michoacan. So, for example, when we first were doing the design, I remember the designer, I mean, who did an incredible job, but initially he, they came back with some designs and it was like these very Aztec, really beautiful Aztec designs. And I was like, they're really beautiful, but Michoacan was never conquered by the Aztecs. So... I don't feel like we can use those designs. Like I wanted to make sure that it's like specific to the region of Michoacan. And so I shared with him like all these textiles and all this artwork from Michoacan. And I was like, here's some inspiration. Like this is what we want to reflect. So the design that we use are inspired by
0: Michoacan
1: textiles. So
0: again, awesome. we wanted to make sure that it was
1: specific to the region.
0: So I meant to ask this way before and I forgot. Where did the name Mosel? come from.
1: So, mosel is means only you in nahuatl and cuz we're in Michoacan the region that we're from, it's the nawa region which speaks that for us the only you it was to reflect the uniqueness of the mezcal. And what I mean by that is that every batch is is a small batch and so just because of where the agave was grown each batch is going to be different, and also too because the bottles are handmade. Like some have little, you know, little imperfections, right? Because it's it's una artesanal, right? It's the hands touches, so every bottle is unique, and so we wanted to make sure that it reflected the uniqueness of of the bottle, of the mezcal, and the way that the mezcalas are made.
0: So I think that also is reflected in the price point because if people go, they might be like, "Oh my gosh," because it's one ninety nine and two thirty five, depending on which expression you get yeah so I think that all of the things that you were talking about that's what goes into the price the uniqueness of all of the different things obviously having to import it these are very small batches everything is handcrafted just to share with people if that's you know just be prepared it's not five dollar ninety nine cent mezcal you're gonna get some good quality stuff yes yeah
1: yeah no thank you for for sharing that yeah so for us it was one of the things that from the very beginning that we we wanted to make sure was that the families that make it get paid fairly. And, you know, it's interesting because we've had conversations with like bartenders, right? And they'll be like, oh, like we want to make sure that like the producer and the farmer and, da, da. and they're like, oh, but it has to be like a $20 bottle. And I'm like, you realize you cannot have a $20 bottle of mezcal in the US, in the US. If you go to Mexico and you go out to the boonies and you travel remote and you go, then yes, you can get a leader and da, da, da. But to beat because of taxes and everything, you cannot get a $20 bottle without having some sort of labor exploitation. And that for us is like, we're not going to cross that line. Like, we're just not going to do that. And so for us, it was really important that the families that we're working with got paid Fairly. And then also too, because of the, the agaves that we use, we have one one of our expressions, right? It takes 15 to 25 years to grow. And then also too, right? The, the ceramic bottle. I mean, everything is like handmade and and we're and we're only producing really small batches. So the cupriata, we have 423 bottles, and then the
0: ensemble is 279 bottles. As you guys grow, right? As you guys grow, those bottles will only get more valuable. Just saying. Yes. Else, <laughs> bottles are only you know what? Just send me a bottle. You don't even need to have any mezcal in there. I just want a bottle because they're so pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can use them
1: as a as a vase, as a florero. So yes, there's a lot of uses.
0: <laughs> that actually leads into my, like as we're as we're closing out and everything, that leads into my next question in regards to. You and your sister are the co-founders of this and you're women in a man's game in Mezcal. How has that hindered or helped you as you've gone through this whole process?
1: I mean, it definitely helps you stand out, right? Because less than 5% of spirits are owned by either women or people of color. That's very small. So it does help you stand out. But it is, you know what's interesting is that who knows, maybe like five years from now, I'll have a different answer. But so far, my experience has been that in Mexico, it has been an amazing experience. Where I have experienced sort of the the tension, I would say, has been, you know, and I would say like microaggressions, right? So, I mean, a perfect example, I remember early on, like we went to this like importer, like this industry event, here in Seattle. And like Seattle, like super progressive, right? Very open minded. You know, they, 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 that's like the reputation that they have, right? Right. So I go with my husband and he is not involved you know in mescal he he's a big whiskey drinker he'll drink he loves our mescal but he's not it's me and my sister who run everything so, but i was like hey you should come with me go cool key so we go and the whole night my husband had to be like no she's the owner no she's uh, you need to talk to her so that was like interesting you do run into i don't know how to explain it but people
0: try you, can, you don't have to be pc here girl no no no, no 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 <laughs> yeah
1: just say how it is just say how it is right no well like where people try to help you but they also are like you should be grateful right like that some and
0: it's like oh, girl, i was really hard. hard enough on that <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know i mean and we had it i like, i had something like that happen just recently so that's why it's really top of mind but like i wasn't at you know i was not asking for Anything, but somehow, like I had just asked, like, "Hey, the conversation that we had, you know, could we just have it in a like a one page memo so that we like we agree on what we're going to do?" And I was working with the vendor here in the states, and then was like, "Oh, we never do that." Da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, I wasn't even like trying to negotiate terms. Like I was just saying, "Can we just put it in a in a yeah. one pager?" And the conversation turned into like, I just want to give you some advice. Like, you know, if you try to do this with someone else, like that would never go well. And I was just like, hmm, I wonder if I didn't look, if I wasn't like Latina or if I wasn't a woman, like, would you still be having that conversation? If you were a man, it would probably be like, oh yeah, of course, like you, you should have it on a, you know, we should write it down. But somehow me asking it became this whole issue of, oh, I don't know, you know, let me give you some advice. You should not be asking for those things,
0: you know? (laughs) No, always ask in writing. What are you talking about? Yeah,
1: yeah. And again, it was like, I was just so taken aback because it made me realize like, oh, wow, like this is a person that is actually like a really nice person and like it's trying to help. But even then, like those unconscious bias, like creep in, you know? Yeah, Yeah. but one thing I'll say is I've just been absolutely impressed by the women in the spirits industry, how supportive they are with each other. Like that's just one of the things that I'm like super grateful and and it has been really, really awesome.
0: Well, I'm glad that I met you. I mean, we met through LinkedIn, right? I think that was LinkedIn. And then I'm super happy that I like messaged you because I saw that and I was like, (sighs) wait, there's a Latina on mezcal. This is freaking awesome. I have the doctor. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. What do you want your legacy to be? As you continue with Moselle, as you continue to grow, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: Oh my gosh, Jessica, you're asking like really deep questions. Let me have some more mezcal here. Salud. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mine's gone now. <laughs> oh no, you're fast. Oh. It's mm. the Jamaica one. That one's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: My legacy. For me, it has always been like my motivation and like it, everything that I do has been about how do we make sure that people in our community see themselves reflected. And so I, I would say that that's what I would want my legacy to be, that like people feel that their stories were shared and that you know, that I did it in a way that it uplifted our
0: community. I think that's beautiful. How can people find Mosel Mescal? Mezcal? Share your website and your social media so people can find you, so they can reach out to you, so they can tell you how badass you are and they can order your Mezcal. How can they do all of that?
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so right now we just launched our first inaugural batch and we're doing like a highly allocated model again, because of the way the process that we're doing and the batches that we're doing. So we're doing two releases. Um, so we just released our first batch. And so you can order it online at moselmescal.com and that's M O C E L. M-E-Z-C-A-L dot com. And then the other way too is on Instagram at Mosel Mezcal. And there we like share, you know, you'll get to learn about Michoacán, about our distillation process, and also just ideas on how to, to pair with, you know, how, ways to pair mezcal with. And then eventually, so right now it's mainly online, and then we're starting to, at least here in Seattle, um, we're starting to be available in select bars and restaurants, and hopefully we'll make our way down to California soon. But right now you can get us online.
0: Awesome. Rosalinda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm so happy we finally got to do this because I've been wanting to hear your story for since we connected.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed uh, my time here today and thank you so much for what you're doing Uh, because of you. I've now discovered so many incredible wineries and now a gift to friends. So thank you.
0: Oh, that makes me so happy. Seriously. I just, I think when you find something that you're passionate about and you share it, people know it, they can feel the love that you have for it and then they want to share it as well. So, so go check out Mosel Mezcal. You guys, this is the very first episode. I've never drank any sort of sparkling wine or any sort of wine. So that tells you something <laughs> right there. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the wine and chisme podcast for more information on today's guest please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels you can check out all things wine and chisme on our website the wine and podcast.com there you will find the names of wines i drink each episode as well as additional information on me the podcast and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there you can also find us on social media the wine and chisme on instagram and at the wine and chisme podcast on facebook remember if you want to hear more wine and chisme please subscribe rate and review five star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more until next time saludos